Okay, is that better? All right, amen, good. Thank you, Billy, for helping. Uh, I guess I've got a tradition of having mic troubles with these sermons lately, so. Um, good to see you all today, welcome. It's good to be with you. It's uh, <clears throat> being uh, sick and trying to be cautious uh, is not the most fun always. And I know it's harder. It's hard on all of us. It's hard on Carla. She's very social, as some of you know. So she misses very much being around people. Um, but uh, we're doing the best we can to take care of myself. So I'm glad to be here again. Uh, couple of personal notes before I begin. Uh, as has been announced in church the last couple of weeks, I think, at least last week I heard it, uh, I remember, but um, uh, we are having our annual, well, it's not really annual anymore because we missed because of COVID and because of last year, so we missed two years, but we're having our Christmas party this afternoon, five o'clock, and so uh, we'd love to have uh, any of you who can make it. Uh, don't feel guilty if you can't make it, Okay. Sometimes people feel guilty. There is no quiz. <laughs> really no attendance. Just uh, if you can come and want to spend a few minutes with us, that's great. It will be busy uh, and crowded and all of that, but we love to have people over. And uh, uh, in the past, it's always been one of the highlights of our year. And so uh, we would love to have some of you come and join us this evening for that. Second thing, just a quick update on my health status because I know a lot of you wonder what's going on. So um, last week I had another CT scan, talked to my doctor on Thursday about it. Uh, so kind of, kind of a mixed bag. Good news, the radiation treatment that I had a couple of months ago was pretty effective, and the doctor was very pleased. Um, I'm not looking at any short-term serious problems. So that's a really good thing. Uh, the chemo I was taking was not doing enough, so we're going to be trying some more treatments. So we just keep going down them. I've done five different chemos so far. Uh, it's amazing how many of these drugs they have. Uh, uh, but we keep looking for one that will do something, and if not a chemo, maybe a miracle. So uh, keep praying, and we would love to have that happen. But we're thankful... Um, we were in the visit, and I recalled talking to the doctor a couple of months ago, and we were talking about, you know, prognosis. What do you think? He says, you know, we're going to do quality of care. I don't think there's a way we can probably heal this necessarily. And we said, well, how long? You know, will we be around for Christmas? And he says, well, you know, cancer is really unpredictable. Sometimes people have to move up their Christmases because it's going, you know, because of how it's going. So at this meeting on Thursday, I told the doctor, thank you for Christmas. Because we'll have Christmas as a family together, all my family here. Um, my son Carl and his wife Lizzie and their son Normandy, who some of you have met, they're floating around here somewhere. Um, but, uh, uh, and my son Greg and Herschel and, and Ashton and Sherry and all of us will be here together at Christmas, and that'll be a great, great time. So we're very thankful for that. So I, I try to be very clear in telling my doctor thank you. Even when the news isn't good, I tell him thank you. 
because he's doing his best. I know he doesn't want me to suffer. And I know, you know, do being, I've often thought about this, being a cancer doctor is probably a, one of the hardest jobs, one of the most thankless jobs, because you deliver a lot of bad news. And people are not happy, and they blame you for a lot of the bad news. So I try to be thankful, and I hope he appreciates that. I hope it means something to him. I'm just trying to do that because that's part of my testimony too, right? God is sovereign. And so if my life ends, it ends. But uh, God is good. Now, a few weeks ago, Kurt reached out to me and asked uh, if I'd be willing to preach uh, a message in this series on the supernatural storyline of the Bible, which is kind of funny. When he did the first sermon back uh, several months ago, several years ago, whenever that was, you know. <laughs> we know how ser- series go around here, right? Um, whenever that was, uh, we listened to it at home, and as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, I've heard some of this stuff before. And that was the afternoon Kurt was doing some family photos for our family. And we appreciate him doing that for that. That meant a lot to us. But uh, uh, so when I got there, we were there before everyone was there. And the first thing I said to him, Kurt, have you been reading some Mike Heiser? <laughs> and he says, well, yeah. He sees me, you know, I go, oh. Yeah, Mike Heiser's a good friend of mine. Which just kind of tied it all together in kind of a strange thing. So anyway, being part of this series makes sense, I think. Um, Although Mike's interpretations are not perfect, I'll disagree with some things. I disagree with some things Kurt will say, I'm sure, along the way. He'll disagree with some things I say along the way. That's all right. That's how it goes. But in, in general... I think Mike and Kurt have hit on something that's really important, that there's more to the world than just the stuff we touch and see. And the Bible treats that as very real, just as real, maybe even more real than what we touch and see. So uh, the supernatural storyline of the Bible uh, is, I think, an important thing to think about Today, he wanted me to talk about the image of God. You maybe got a hint of that earlier. He mentioned that. Um, it's a good match for a theology professor because uh, theology professors love to talk about things like the image of God. I have whole lectures on it, two or three of them, in fact. So I, I'm going to try not to do all of that this morning for you, okay? So what I'd, what I'd like to do is first pray, and then we'll jump into... Uh, what Genesis 1 says about the image of God, and then we'll talk about a couple of things we're going to try to look at this morning. So let's pray. God, you are such a good God. And we experience that both in the good times and the bad times. We know you're with us. Your presence sustains us. Today, as we explore this issue of the image of God, help us to have wisdom to see what you would want us to see and help us to make sense out of how this image contributes to our understanding of this supernatural storyline of the Bible. Both how we were created and our ultimate destiny. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the key passage for the image of God is the original creation passage in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. So if you want to follow along, you can open your Bible or your app and jump in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, right at the beginning. We're making great progress. We're going to finish chapter 1 anytime here of Genesis. <laughs> Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It will get faster, I promise. <laughs> then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So what I'd like to do today, at least my plan, is to, to try to answer three questions. First, what are some general observations we can make about the creation of humanity from these verses? They'll provide some context and background for what we're going to talk about. Second, briefly, we're going to just talk about why this passage says humanity was created, what we're supposed to be doing. And third, how does the image of God that's mentioned in these verses connect to that supernatural storyline of the Bible? Because it does. It makes sense. If we can see the broad sweep of where Scripture is going, uh, the image of God is an important part of that story. So let me first talk about some general observations. What are some things we can learn about the creation of humanity from these several verses, primarily? First thing I want to observe is that the creation of humanity, if you look through the whole account in Genesis 1, the creation of humanity is unique. It's unlike anything else that's created. It's the longest single creation account of any given thing you see. Now, there's a reason writers write longer about topics. Generally, you write the longest about the most important things, right? Most unique things, the things you want to really zoom in on. So it's the longest. There's something, there, there are other things about this account that also draw our attention. Uh, this is the only creation account in Genesis 1, all of the six days, where God says, has this, we call it a deliberative introduction. Let us make man. Nothing else is created like that, right? Let us make man in our image. And so the fact that God talks about it before he does it, again, grabs our attention. This is unique. It's different. It's meant to draw our attention. The image of God itself is unique. Only humans are said to be in the image of God. Dogs, cats, much as we love them, uh, not in the image of God. <laughs> right? No other creatures are in the image of God. We'll talk more about that image of God a little bit later, but... Uh, it's unique to humanity. Of all the creation accounts, 
counts in, in Genesis chapter 1, only for humans does it specifically say that humans are created male and female. Again, that's something the author, Moses, puts in here to draw our attention, to make us focus on this creation account. This is, the, you know, this is what he wants us to see. And last, I'll just highlight, in Genesis 1 at least, um, this is the only account where the, the responsibilities and the duties of the creation are spelled out real clearly. Rule, subdue, all of that. Much more detail than anything else. Um, there's more, actually. If you go into Genesis chapter 2, as Kurt hinted at, there's more things we learn about humanity and its creation, its uniqueness, how it was created, what it does, and all of that. But I'm going to stick with chapter 1 for the moment because I'm going to run out of time, I'm afraid. So, anyway, first, the creation of humanity is unique. It's different than anything else in Genesis chapter 1. So it's meant to zoom our attention and grab our attention, focus our attention. Second, um, it's not just unique. It is preeminent or the most important thing in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. In a sense, this builds on the previous point, but it goes a bit further. The idea that humans are not merely unique, but we are the high point of creation. We're the culmination of the creation account. Some of this is just indicated by the sequence, right? The last thing God creates, humanity. We're the pinnacle. We're the top. Now, there's lots of things we could say about that, more about that, but uh, that's important. We live in a world where oftentimes humans are said to be not that significant, right? People say, be better off if we got rid of humans and let the rest of creation go on their own. Not according to the biblical account of creation. Humans are essential and important and the high point. So our, our dear friends from PETA and other places, um, you know, they sometimes make some good points. Certainly we ought to avoid unnecessary cruelty to animals and all those sorts of things. Uh, I'm all on board with that. But it's something about God's priorities here. He saves the best for last, right? He builds that uh, in the right way. Um, oh, sorry, get my pages in the right order. Oh, that's horrible. Hmm. Uh, okay. This general background is supplemented by the way God gives humans authority over the other animals to rule over them. So they're important in the sense that we rule over the creatures around us, rule over the world around us. And to get a little more uh, depth into that, I want us to look at a parallel passage, if we can, for just a few moments. Psalm 8. So, psalm 8 is, is one of the early psalms. Um, if we look there for a few moments, I think we will see how the psalmist views the creation account. I'm going to pick up in verse 3. The whole psalm is wonderful, but again, for time's sake, pick up at verse 3 
when the psalmist begins what seems to me and to many scholars to be a meditation on the creation account in Genesis 1. Kind of reflection on that. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, that's all day four stuff, right? What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler. Notice how he highlights that, right? You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. That's dominion language. All the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea, that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. So again, what we see here is the psalmist clearly thinking about Genesis 1. Heavens, the sun, and the moon, and the stars. And then he thinks there's that same pattern of language we see in the, in the image of God text about animals, birds, fish, right? You got the same domains. And we rule over all those things. That's the place humanity has. A little lower than God, although we'll come back to that word a little later, uh, but ruling over all the created beasts. Humans are not at the same level of animals. A third thing. The creation of humanity, now I'm going to live dangerously here, so just be patient with me, okay? I'm not a heretic, I don't think, I promise. <laughs> All right. The creation of humanity is incomplete. And what I mean by that is the way God created Adam and Eve is the not the way humanity will end up at the end of the story. We have different ways we talk about this. We talk about glorification, for example, right? We'll become something more. So uh, the creation of Adam and Eve, they're perfect, but they're perfect like a newborn baby is perfect. Doesn't mean they don't grow up, doesn't, don't mature, don't change in significant ways, although there certainly is continuity and connections there. We can describe some of those things pretty clearly. So knowledge, for example. Even if you read Genesis 1 and 2, in Genesis 2, Adam learns he is alone. He didn't realize that at first, right? He names all the animals, and then suddenly he realizes I'm alone. There's no one for me. Adam and Eve learn about good and evil. It's not a great education, but uh, they learn something nonetheless, right? And obviously, I, I think it's fair to say we know about molecular science and astronomy and things like that that Adam and Eve likely knew. You know, we build on the knowledge of the past. We know things that they could not have known because they had not yet invented the tools and techniques to study things. So we know more. There's growth in knowledge. That's, that's a, an obvious thing. There's a growth in morality, or at least a potential growth in morality. Adam and Eve are created without sin, but they have the potential to sin. 
They also have the potential, which they didn't achieve, uh, to not sin and to become morally perfect. They could have matured and grown and all of that. Part of the reason they're tested in Genesis chapter 3 is to uh, give them a chance to grow their will in obedience to God. They failed that test, but it was there. I'll just mention one other thing. There's other things we might highlight, but uh, uh, relationally, Adam starts off, I mentioned alone, then he gets Eve. Boy, that's pretty good, right? He's pretty happy about that. Finally, I got some company, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, all of that, right? Good, good thing, right? But then Adam and Eve have children. And then their children have children. And they grow not just families, but clans and tribes and villages and communities and eventually cities and nations. All those things. Right? Humans are more relationally mature than Adam was at the beginning, than Adam and Eve were at the beginning. We have more relationships. Every relationship we have deepens us, enriches us, makes us a bigger, fuller, more complete person. Now I should point that when we look at the, the birth and life of Jesus, we see something similar. Jesus was, in, in, in his incarnation, a perfect person, yes. But he was born an infant. Yeah. And he grew. And he grew in all those things, right? Knowledge and wisdom and all those things that Luke talks about. As the second man, as the last Adam... Jesus defines humanity absent our sinfulness. Jesus is what we would be like if we hadn't been sinful. And notice he grows. He matures. So human development, I think that's part of it. We were incomplete in this original creation. In the early church, um, some of the early church theologians actually made this point explicitly. They saw this, and somehow we kind of lost this for a long time. I'm not sure how exactly. But Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, talked about this. He said we have to grow into maturity, grow so that we can fully relate to God. And I think that's the point, right? Entering into God's presence like I am right now, would be a little scary. But entering into his presence transformed and glorified is just an opportunity for pure joy. So that's part of the supernatural storyline of the Bible. We grow. Again, we'll maybe come back to a bit of that a little bit later. The last thing I'll say about humanity as created in the image of God in Genesis chapter 1, as far as a general observation, is the image of God is subordinate. What I mean by that is we're not on our own. We live under God. Yeah. Our ruling function that Genesis 1 talks about actually works so that we are under God's sovereign hand and should be directed by God's sovereign will. We have no right 
to just, I'll do whatever I want with the world. We have no right to despoil nature. We have no right to abuse creatures, to be cruel to animals. We have no right to destroy the environment just because we want to. And unfortunately, the history of humanity is filled with more than a few occasions when humans have done that. If you've read your history, you know some of those stories. I always think uh, when my kids were growing up and they were little, they used to play the, the game, the early versions of the game. I think a new version is just coming out, Oregon Trail. A lot of you, right? Yeah, you're going, yeah, I remember that one. You're younger people, right? Um, you'd go and kill buffalo. How many buffalo would you kill? As many as you could, even though you could only carry the meat from like one buffalo back to feed, right? You just would kill them because it was cool. You know, that's how history was too. That's what happened to the American bison, right? They just, they'd go out and there'd be these huge packs of thousands and thousands of animals and they would just shoot them and leave their carcasses laying on the ground brought them almost to extinction. Thankfully not. But that's how humans treat nature way too often. And the reason is we lose track of what it means to be human. We're in the image of God, which means we're responsible to God. It's his creation. We represent God. It's not our creation to do what we will with it. All right. Second, why did God create humanity? This will be our shortest section here today. Because again, in, in Genesis chapter 1, the answer is pretty clear. Um, let me start with some answers that are incorrect, that are often used. Some I think we just need to kind of remind ourselves are totally wrong. God did not create humanity because he was lonely. It's amazing how often people think that. It's, it's just uh, striking. But the passage here already indicates that God is not alone. Let us make man in our image, right? There's some sort of community there. We'll talk about what kind of community in a few minutes. But there's something already present before humans arrive. God's not lonely. <laughs> Nor did God create humans because he needed something from us. You know, my life is so miserable. If only I had humans to fill out that, that, that gap in my life's life. God isn't thinking like that. God is self-sufficient. He needs nothing from us. He's perfectly fine without us. In fact, the Bible says, Bible indicates, Christians have said, he's caught up in the perfect and overflowing love of the Trinity so that nothing is lacking in God. So, not for those reasons. One other reason I think I'll mention, God did not create humans just so they have toys to manipulate people to make miserable, someone to push around, to force to do his bidding. That's the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. 
and the Babylonians and all the other gods. They created humans so they could manipulate you, so they could control you, so they could do what they want with you. That's not God, our God. It's not the God of the Bible. God is a loving God. He created us out of his overflowing love because he loved so much he wanted to share his love with us as well. So what do we think about this, this purpose? Why did God create us? In Genesis 1, the purpose given is to rule over the earth, to subdue it. In Psalm 8, again, we see this. It's almost the definition of what humanity is, right? We're given to rule over the earth. So I think it's a good place to start. God created us to manage, to rule this planet and the creatures and the creations who are here. It's at least a major part of why God created humanity. Now, what does it mean to rule? Those words in Genesis 1 do not mean just to kind of throw your authority around. They mean to exercise authority there under another. It means to manage well. It means to do with the resources we have what God wants us to do. It's a kind of stewardship, to borrow a word we are familiar with. In the Old Testament days, when a king would conquer a nation or a city, he would often put a statue of himself in that city so that even when he wasn't physically present himself, there would be an image present in that city that showed he was ruling over it. That's this word. That's this idea. So we image God. We represent him. We rule on his behalf over this world. That's what we see in Genesis 1, the original creation account. Humanity was made to rule over this world with God's sight. Which to our third question. How does this image of God mentioned in Genesis 1 fit within the supernatural storyline of the Bible? First, let me just say a brief comment about trying to define what the image is. This is where those lectures start going. So I'm just going to give you one paragraph instead of uh, two 50-minute lectures. Historically, there have been many ways that people have tried to define the image of God. Perhaps the most common way some people have chosen to emphasize the features or characteristics of humanity that make us in the image. So things like our intellect, our will, Maybe our morality, those kind of things. We have certain features or characteristics. When we compare ourselves to God, God has those things, so we are in his image. We are like him in these characteristics. Unfortunately, there's no direct statement in Genesis 1 that says that, right? No list of qualities or characteristics. It just kind of gets dropped on us. You're in the, excuse me, you're in the image of God. A second view that some people have is 
They see that language, let us make man in our image. See that plural language. And they think God's in some sort of relationships. So the image is the fact that we are relational beings. That we are made to be in community. Again, there's a really powerful insight there that's true. We're not meant to be alone. No man is an island, as the old saying goes, right? We're meant to be parts of families and neighborhoods and communities and churches. That's why the church, one reason why the church is so important. Because we're meant to be in community, not just on our own. But again, these verses don't say that directly. In fact, I would argue there's no verses that say that directly. The third option that some people have focused on is the function, what we've just been talking about, this rulership function. Um, it's the most explicit in these verses, but although even then it's not directly linked to the image. You know, it doesn't say that is the image is this, but nonetheless... Uh, some people say the image is what we do when we rule well. Um, if you think about it this way, the image is more a verb than a noun. We image God. Does that make sense? We image God. We aren't the image of God. My conclusion, after reviewing all these theories, which have been discussed for now 2,000 years plus, go back to Jewish literature as well, is that no one knows. <laughs> My profound conclusion after much deliberation. No one knows, nor are we likely to reach any definitive conclusion here. I just think this is a question the Bible is by and large uninterested in. The Bible doesn't seem to care a lot about what the image is. It cares about how we live in light of the image. It cares about how the image fits in this supernatural storyline of the Bible, but not much more. So, I don't know. <laughs> it's okay to say I don't know. Now, um, I want to go back to this, uh, to, to one of the features of this, this question, the let us and our. Because um, Psalm 8 may help us a little bit with this. In, in, in Genesis 1, it says, let us make man in our image. And if we're going to think about the image, one thing we would want to think about a little bit is the us and the our. Who is Moses talking about? Who is God speaking to? And again, for many Christian theologians, they have suggested it's the Trinity. God the Father, the Son, and Spirit having a kind of divine deliberation, talking about what they're about to do. And I don't think we can rule that out entirely. But I think it's fair to note that in the Old Testament, the notion of the Trinity is hard to really see. It's only when Jesus is incarnate that the doctrine of the Trinity begins to, it's no pun intended, flesh itself out, right? <laughs> Maybe intended. Um, 
you know, the, uh, we begin to see Father and Son as being clearly distinct. And then the work of the Spirit as we get to especially to the book of Acts, right? Uh, we get this dynamic, and Christian theologians draw heavily on the New Testament more than the Old Testament. So I wonder if that's right. One clue we can get is by going to Psalm chapter 8 again. We're going to go to Psalm chapter 8. And I said I was going to come back to this. We've been made a little lower than God. That's the Christian Standard Bible. That's the translation I've been using so far. But one of the greatest tools in studying the Bible is comparing Bible translations. I hope some of you have learned how to do that. If not, there are lots of great tools, even online, to allow you to look at multiple translations. And this is a great one, because when you start doing it, you will get confused very quickly. <laughs> so I'm just going to give you the results. I looked uh, at several translations last night. Um, the Christian Standard Bible and the New Revised Standard Version both say We've been made a little, humans have made a little lower than God. Just what we saw earlier. Interestingly, the ESV and the NIV both say we've been made a little lower than the heavenly beings. The New King James Version, we've been made a little lower than angels. Very interesting, right? Now, where do these ideas come from? Remember the word Elohim, and we've talked a little bit about this, I think, in the series. That word Elohim is a general word. It's not really a name. It's just used for God or gods or divine beings or angels. The context has to tell us what it means. Okay? What would it mean to say that God created us a little lower than God. Is there any real new information conveyed in that statement? I mean, we're obviously lower than God. We don't really need to be told that exactly, right? Do we? Maybe we do. I don't know. Sometimes maybe we do. I, I, uh, maybe some of you need that. If you do, I'm just telling you, yes, you're a little lower than God. But that, that doesn't seem to be particularly uh, communicative of anything new. In, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which uh, took the Old Testament, it was Jewish translators, a few hundred years before Jesus, here's how they translated. We were made a little lower than the angeloi. You hear the word? Angelo, you know where that is, right? Angels. So when they read Elohim, they thought it must mean angels or divine beings, if you prefer. Something more on that order. It doesn't mean God. It doesn't make sense. If that's correct, I think a very strong case can be made for that. Then if you go back to Genesis 1, let us make man in our image in our likeness, it's certainly possible God is communicating with that divine counsel that we've begun to see show up 
in this supernatural storyline of the Bible that we kind of ignore when we see it. We kind of are uncomfortable with this, right? In First Kings, when God has all those angels around him, what should we do? Who's going to go for me? Or Job 1 and 2, sons of God before God, all th those kinds of things. So if that's the case, let us make man in our image suggests that image includes perhaps not just God, but even the angelic beings, the divine beings. We reflect something of their character and their being too. Even if we can't exa answer exactly what it is, it changes our focus a little bit. So what I'd like to do now is just kind of walk through how the Bible talks about the image of God, kind of a, a little biblical theological thing. Uh, one of the fascinating things, I encourage you to do this, if you have a search program or you can go to one of the Bible websites and search, look for how many times the image of God occurs in the Bible. Not very often. I think it's about 11 passages in the whole Bible. It's not all over the place. You'd expect it to be all over the place. Seems like it's important, and I think it is. Uh, but there are other ways to make the same kind of observation. So a lot of different languages used for this kind of idea. But let's just look at the image of God. It begins in Genesis 1. We've looked at that already. God creates humanity in the image of God. Whatever it is, that's who we are. We're all in the image of God. The second place it occurs is in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Here's what uh, it says there. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Same one of the words from Genesis 1. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. So Genesis 5 helps us see that the image of God doesn't end with Adam, right? It's passed on. Something all humans get by descent part of our genetic legacy, if you will. I don't know if it's genetic or some other form, but somehow we can think that way. We're modern people, that's all right. The third place in the Old Testament and the final place in the Old Testament image of God occurs is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. After the flood, remember, you may remember Noah gets off the ark um, and God gives him some instructions. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God created man. All right, so why do we not murder people? I mean, there's general moral principles, but there's a real direct one. Every human being is made in the image of God. You have no right to... Do, to wipe out the image of God in another person. That's God's image. Only God has that authority. So uh, 
if we do do that in any way, so you know, we get to modern things, things, things like capital punishment, um, even then, the rationale has to be this person has taken a life, so they forfeit their life, right? They've, there's, if you believe in capital punishment, that has to be, I have to work that out. It's not just an arbitrary thing. We can't just take life for any reason. That's it. You've got the whole Old Testament there. <laughs> Surprise anyone? Seems weird, doesn't it? It occurs a few places in, in some of the literature written between the Testaments, but I want to jump to the New Testament and point out some funny things. Well, not funny, but interesting things that happen with the idea of the image in the New Testament. I want to begin with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. This is very strong Christological language, right? Verse 3. The son is the radiance of of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Some of the older translations have the exact image. It's that idea, right? He, he is the precise stamp, right? You know, if you created a stamp that replicated God, Jesus would be that one, that kind of idea. So when you get to the New Testament, there's this shift, the image of God now is expressed in the image of Christ. Which becomes important for us because we have passages like Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Notice what happens. Instead of now being conformed to God's image, we are conformed to Christ's image who is in God's image. So now it's all woven together. Or 2 Corinthians 3.18. Again, there aren't many verses, so I'll cover them all. Here. We all with unveiled faces are looking as a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image, the glory of the Lord, Jesus in this context. It's the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord Jesus, who is the Spirit. So again, the New Testament says, Jesus is the image of God, and now we're being transformed into his image. So there's an advance or a clarification or a refocusing, maybe we could say, of the image of God in the New Testament. And then it goes on a number of other places. Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24 are parallel passages that talk about putting on the new self and being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator or being uh, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. We, in our sanctification, are becoming more godlike, more in God's image, more in Christ's image, Right? He's the firstborn of many brothers, right? 
He is the one we are to be like. We are to be Christ-like. All of that ties in there. And just so you know that the New Testament continues the ethical uh, strain of the image, in James chapter 3, many of you are aware, James says, not only do we not murder people because of the image, we don't curse people because they're in the image of God. So when that guy cuts in front of you on the beltway, uh, well, anyway, yes. Yeah, okay. We're, we, fortunately, God is very forgiving. So let's talk about this. Now, I want to get this. If you think about this, so not much about the image of the Old Testament. The image gets refocused on Jesus in the New Testament. We get transformed into his likeness. Christ, like we become with him, we're united with him, right? All that kind of language we see in the New Testament. How does this help us understand the supernatural storyline in the Bible? Well, here's how, I, here's how I would put it simply. There's more to be said, but I think this will, will be suffice. The original creation hierarchy was pretty direct. God at the top, right? No doubt about that. Underneath him, the angels. We're made a little lower than the angels. And we have authority over the created world. So we have a big range of authority, to be sure. It's not a small task. But we're under the angels. So there's kind of this God, angels, humans, rest of creation. That's there. But... The supernatural storyline of the Bible says that's not how the story ends. Mm -hmm. That is, we don't end in the same place we start. The, the, the storyline of the Bible overturns that hierarchy and changes things. Mm -hmm. Probably the verse that's clearest in this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Or don't you know the saints will judge the world? How can we judge the world? Because we have rulership over it, right? If the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? You can handle internal disputes. Verse 3 is the, the kicker, though. Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Hmm. Angels are supposed to be above us, but now it says we're going to judge the angels. Notice, flipped, right? The hierarchy is changed. Because we are united with Christ, we will rule and reign with him forever. We will have his authority. We'll share his status. And the angels get moved down a notch. I don't think they'll feel bad about it. That was, that was, that was nice of you. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, yeah I, I don't think they'll feel bad about it. Although it's kind of you to feel that way. Uh, I think what I would say about it is that they will, they will marvel at this. They will be amazed at this. And they will be, they will, I think, even rejoice in this. But it's not what we started out as. Again, I said at the beginning, 
The original creation was incomplete. You have to get all the way to the end of the story. What's our story? We're glorified. Amen. We rule and reign with Christ. We will judge angels. Uh, we have this much exalted status. Okay, now I'm going to live really dangerously for five minutes, okay? Can I do that? Why not? Um, in the Eastern Orthodox churches, that's Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all those Orthodoxy guys, right? Um, when they talk about salvation, they have a different way of looking at it than we do in many ways. When we talk about salvation, we tend to focus on forgiveness, right? Our sins are forgiven. That's a glorious truth. It's a wonderful truth. The New Testament certainly teaches that. The Bible teaches that. So that's a wonderful truth. But rather than forgiveness, in the Orthodox churches, they focus more on salvation as a transformation. In other words, salvation doesn't just forgive our sins and leave us unchanged. It turns us into new beings, new kinds of beings, exalted beings, glorified beings. That's the goal of all of that. They have a word for this, theosis, they use. Becoming godlike is the language, really. It's an ancient Christian tradition. I'm just going to read you uh, maybe three. I've got a bunch of them here. I'm just going to read three. Three lines from some of the early church fathers, all of whom are totally orthodox. We looked at them. They helped us figure out the doctrine of the Trinity and all of this, okay? So we look at them and say, boy, this guy helped us with the Trinity. Ask, uh, Irenaeus, first church theologian. Here's what he said. See if this makes you nervous. If it does, it's okay. I'll explain why it's okay in a minute. But He said, if the word is made man, it is that men might become gods. You can see that make people nervous, right? Mm -hmm. Again, but think about what we said about what the word gods means, right? Divine beings not equal with God, but something new, something amazing. Athanasius helped with the doctrine of the Trinity, hero of the faith. God became man so that men might become gods. Now, wow, that's weird, isn't it? One more. A Gregory of Nyssa, another guy who helped with the Trinity. God united himself to our nature in order that our nature might be made divine through union with God. Okay? Or think of Peter in the book of 2 Peter, where he says, we can participate in the divine nature. Yeah. Again, we kind of fly by that lots of times. We don't take it seriously. Right. We really are transformed is yeah. the point of this. We become something new, something greater. One church historian, Yaroslav Pelikan, said this. Because the first Adam on the other side of the fall is hidden from our eyes by the mists of sin and death. In other words, we can't see what Adam was really like. We are authorized to fill in the content of the image of God granted at creation of the first Adam from what has been revealed at the epiphany of the second Adam, right? Christ is thus not only the revelation of God to man, but the revelation of man to man. Think of that. 
we look to Jesus, what does it mean to be truly human? What do we aspire to be? Anthony Hokema says this way, from looking at Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God, we learn the proper functioning of image includes being directed toward God, being directed toward our neighbor, and ruling over nature. So the image of God is not just something that is described in Genesis 1. It even points us forward through Christ to the future, Christocentric, future, transformation. Now, we're not, I'm not giving up the forgiveness thing. I think that's really important. That's central. But I think we could learn a little bit from remembering we don't stay just the way we are. God changes us into something better and more. So let me just give you a couple applications about the image of God, and then we'll be done. First, uh, the image is universal. All humans bear God's image. And uh, that means that uh, all humans deserve to be treated appropriately. This is where we get human rights from, ultimately, as Christians. And our ethical norms This is why we believe in not murdering people, not cursing them. So, all humans. You know, there's been, uh, if you, I don't know if you paid, I, saw, I heard some politician do it just a few weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago. Um, but there's a long history. It happened in Africa with, uh, with one of the civil wars there, where one group began to refer to the people of the other group as bugs. They're bugs. Or maybe less offensive, they're animals. That language is not that uncommon, right? No human being is a bug. No human being is an animal. They are beings created in the image of God. A lot of our problems would be solved if people really believed that. The image includes both male and female. I don't have to say a lot more about that, I don't think, other than to say, just remember, all humans, male and female. Now, granted, Male and female experiences of humanity are slightly different, to be sure. Um, but that's how we're told. They're created. Humans are created male and female. And I think that's one of the most dangerous things about some of the, some of the things that are going on in the modern transgender movement is in trying to obliterate maleness and femaleness. We lose what it means to be human. Again, there are probably things we haven't done well here. All that's true. Humans, uh, male and female, are mutually dependent on each other, should be helping each other, all of that. But uh, we can't obliterate those things. Third, um, if all humans are in the image of God, that means we all have dignity and we all have sanctity of life. That is, uh, history tells us that the reason things like slavery are inappropriate, right? Things like racism and discrimination, all those things are inappropriate. All of those come from a false understanding of the image. One of the early Christian writers, Lactantius, said it this way, what is due to people equally relates to God. Since humanity is the image of God, in other words, we should be treating people like they're God. 
of sense, right? The strongest bond which unites us is humanity. Anyone who breaks it is a criminal and a parasite, someone who kills family. Now it is from the one human being that God created us all so that we are all of the same blood with the result that the greatest crime is to hate humanity or do them harm. We live in an age with a lot of hate. A lot of hate of humanity, whether it's over politics, whether it's over economic theories, whether it's over other things. It's not the way we're supposed to live. All humans are in the image of God. C.S. Lewis said it this way. It's one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, by the way. It comes from his uh, sermon, The Weight of Glory. Um, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. That's us, by the way. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to in one day may be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, glorified. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Destroyed, corrupted, ruined. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Do we live that way? Do we think that way? I don't think we do. Last, I'll just say, the image of God points us to Christ and to our future. It's not just a historical consideration. It's a future-oriented consideration. The image is what we become. We're thankful for that. So the image of God helps shape our understanding, at least of part of the storyline of the Bible. It's not all. I've missed some things. Probably misstated a few things. That just happens. But it uh, um, gives, gives you a way to think about how human creation and ultimate glorification shapes that storyline of the Bible, the image of God, into the image of Christ, into our glorification, ruling and reigning with him, judging angels. It's all part of that one storyline that we are part of if we follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, may you help us to love you more. Maybe you, may you help us to love other humans more as we more fully realize that they are in the image of God, that each human is in the image of God. And help us to live in light of not just the image in a historical sense, but the image in the sense of what the future will be, what we will become. May we begin today even to begin to live as though we are glorified. Because that's our destiny. It's our hope. The image of Christ fully realized. Come quickly, Jesus. We pray. All right, we have time for a few questions, I think. I think we're used to having a few questions. <laughs> People Just are few, used yeah. to going a little bit past the time here, so we'll, we'll give you a few. There, so we have any? Yeah, we have um, one or two here. First all right. of all, Carl, um, thank you just for, for sharing this message with us and bringing this to us. 
It's awesome to have you remind us of all these awesome truths that we see but so often overlook. So thank you for zooming in on some of those and, and helping us just be, again, reminded of how much this story ties together of who God is and what he's done. Um, so thanks for that. And there's a couple messages in here just also saying thank you. And um, So a couple questions. Um, and this one, this one's interesting. It says, uh, do unbelievers become part of the divine nature as well? That's a good question. I, I would say they are in the image of God, but they aren't in the process of being transformed. So they lack that transformational thing. So their image of God is stunted and immature. It doesn't become, they don't receive glorification or sanctification. So they are uh, in the image of God in the sense they're worth dignity and sanctity and all of that. But they don't really, uh, the partakers of the divine nature language is for those of us who follow Jesus, and that's part of our transforming reality uh, there. So I'd say no, but that doesn't mean they're not in the image of God. It just means their image of God is stuck, if you can think of it that way, rather than being in the process of being transformed like we're doing. And again, let's be honest, we're all being transformed in different speeds and different paces, right? Some of us are more transformed than others. And when you look in the mirror in the morning, you know how transformed or untransformed you are. And I certainly know I'm untransformed more than I'd like to be. Um, so, uh, but that's a really good question. So, that, but again, that's I think targeting on that transformational part of salvation that only comes through faith. So thanks. Good question. So along with the uh, created in the image of God and um, the commandment like not to murder because we're created in the image of God, right? Um, this person is wondering, uh, it, in addition to that commandment, God also does tell his people when they enter the land um, that they're going in and they're wiping out those nations, and, and they're wondering about some of that contradiction. Yeah, I think, I think the, the basic difference would be they're not doing it on their own. They're doing it as a stewardship of God, in a sense, right? God says, go do this. So they're obeying God. They're, they're uh, fulfilling God's command to them to wipe out those people. And they're not being wiped out randomly, by the way. They're being wiped out because they're extremely wicked people who've had generations to turn from their sin who haven't, and who, if they are left in the land, as they were, by the way, they weren't all removed, would be a thorn in the side and a temptation to Israel throughout its history. So this is, uh, this is different. It's the same thing I'd say, you know, when you read the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. The, the kill really, probably, I, I prefer a translation that you should not murder. Because the Old Testament has death penalty requirements for certain crimes. They, they don't violate the Ten Commandments, obviously. They're all part of the same law, right? So uh, there are times, again, perhaps when a government does death penalty as part of a legal system, or when there's wars. And again, wars are always awful. No one wants a war, no one likes a war. I think they're awful. Yeah. But sometimes they happen. When they happen, you know, if, everyone, you know, if you just sit around and you're in the war and you just say, well, I can't kill anyone, that's not gonna be real good, right? So uh, 
it, it, these are tough things, and, and Christians have spent a lot of time talking about the ethics of killing. But again, I think generally the rule is killing on your own, without divine authorization, without, um, without the right to take the life. Only God has the right to take the life. And if he says the Jews should go in and kill the Canaanites, they have the right to do it because it's God's decision. God's call. But thanks. That's a that's a good question, and it's good to clarify that. So, uh, we have another question of wondering what the place of evil spiritual beings in the hierarchy is now and future. Well, I think uh, that's a good question. Uh, some of them are. I think at least the highest beings are above us still. The Bible seems to portray the notion that there are divine beings that have control over some of the nations, if not all of the nations. Um, and they're at work in this world. Satan is the king, right? He's the prince of the power of the air. He has authority in this realm, right? Now, we defeat him not by saying, you don't have authority over us, but you say, Jesus has greater authority than you do. So uh, there are beings that are higher than we are in the hierarchy right now, but we will judge them. By the way, they're the, really the only ones that get judged in the end anyway, right? The good angels don't, you know, I don't know what we judge them for anyway. But, uh, um, but uh, uh, yeah, I think that we would say that some of those evil, again, there are different ranks of these divine beings are at different levels, but some of them at least, uh, in the book of Daniel, there's that story where Daniel prays and uh, oh, one of the angels comes to him and says, I was delayed by the prince of Persia. Well, who's the prince of Persia? It's not a human. It's a divine being that had, there was spiritual warfare involved, apparently, that he had to defeat this other angelic being to get there. So if that angelic being can delay an archangel for uh, a long time, he probably has authority over some things in this world too. Probably higher up the food chain than I am, anyway. Good question though, thanks. Are there any passages in uh, any of the gospels where Jesus sort of brings up this idea of um, people being created in God's image? <clears throat> Not in so many words. Like I say, if you search, just I, I'd encourage you, if you have a, a Bible program or if you go on to, online to one of the Bible uh, programs like whatever, Blue Letter Bible, or there's a couple different ones online, and you just do a search of image in any Bible, it just doesn't appear very often. So not in this language. Now, it may, there may be um, a few passages where something sort of parallel to it occurs. Uh, probably the closest one would be in John 10, I think it is, uh, when Jesus quotes the psalm. Okay, and this is, now Jesus is going to make you nervous. Because uh, Jesus says, he quotes the psalm, and Psalm 82, I think it is, says, You are gods. So that's the mouth of Jesus, by the way. Uh, and that's probably the closest we would find. So if we say gods or angels, angelor, Elohim, or divine beings, that might be one that we could plug in there. But that's probably the only one I think that's at all explicit. So we, we uh, fill it in from other places. 
All right, we've got one more question. Uh, this will be our last. Um, to that to that point, there are many other religions that um, talk about the concept of eventually becoming God or becoming one with with God. Um, and how how do we see Christianity as different from all the religions are the same? Um, how do we speak to that? Okay, no, that's a that's a really good question. I I, I wish I had time to talk a little more about that. Um, Here's what I would say. Um, Christians who talk about this idea are always very clear, and the Bible's very clear, that this language does not mean we actually become one with God in kind of a pantheistic sort of way, or we are absorbed into God's nature, or that we ever jump the, the gap between the creator and created beings. It's a, it's a way of just saying we'll be more like God. We'll be equipped and fit to have fellowship with God. So uh, we don't want to read it over literally. And, and all the people, I, the people I quoted, even the early church fathers, Irenaeus, Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, and others who did this, they all said this repeatedly. We're not saying you're equal to God. We're not saying you have all the qualities of God. We're not saying you uh, are merged into God's being. We're just saying you go to a higher level. Again, for us, when we hear this language of God, we have this problem because we're all Westerners. We think of the God of the philosophers. Right. One God who created everything. And so when, I, when you hear Jesus say, right, you are gods, we think, oh my word, what's Jesus saying? <laughs> He's not saying we're all, all powerful beings. He's saying... We all are in that divine being category. We're in that supernatural being category. But we're not like God. There's only one God. And in the Old Testament, they're very, it's very clear when it talks about God. Sometimes just read through the Old Testament. Just note every time it says, uh, God who created heaven and earth. Who created heaven and earth. It almost is like a little tagline. And why is that important? Because, because only one God created everything. Yep. He's unique in that regard. So you and I, whatever we are, if we're small G gods or divine beings or whatever we want to call ourselves, uh, we're never going to create the universe. We don't. God is the creator. Yeah. Jesus is the creator. We, by association with him, get some of the overflow, right? We get some, uh, we get some, uh, you know, some of the glow, right? But, uh, but we're never equal to Jesus or to the Father. So uh, that's, the, that's the biggest difference, I think I would say. We just seem to be, that's why I said I'm going to live dangerously when I mentioned that idea, because people immediately start thinking, oh, we're becoming Mormon or something. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. This is not what the Mormons teach, by the way. They teach we're all going to create our own universes and stuff like that, right? So uh, th that's, that's not how it works. One creator, only one. He's unique. And we worship him. But by grace, he glorifies us and moves us into a higher way of life. Makes us to be like him. Sons of God, all that language, union with Christ.
participate, participating in the divine nature. All that language speaks to the same thing. And so, uh, so don't worry. Nothing too crazy here, really. Just sounds crazy. You think it through carefully. So if you have other questions about, though, feel free to ask. Uh, yeah, I always had always had a few suspicious students after this lecture, but uh, uh, you know, there you go. I always. Uh, uh, oh, I don't know if that's suspicion or not. Then, yeah, but, uh, um, anyway, all right. Well, it's time for us to take just a few moments to reflect on the thing that makes that storyline possible. Time for us to do communion. So if you have not yet got your elements, you better run out there quick and get them. We'll wait just a minute. I'm gonna go to. All right. Every week we do this at, at Solid Rock to remind ourselves of the gospel. What Jesus did for us and how it makes possible that forgiveness and transformation that we've been talking about today. Here's what Jesus, here's what Paul says, excuse me, about what Jesus taught about this meal. So have your bread ready for what I received from the Lord, what I also passed on to you. On, on the night when the Lord was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat together. Can't get yours. Wouldn't you know it? Uh, well, I'm going to ask Carla to help me. See, hopefully, he can get it. We'll see. My neuropathy in my fingers. I got the first part. Of this. All right, I'm good. Thank you. All right. Paul continues. First Corinthians 11. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice of your body and blood for us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins it brings us. Thank you for the new life it gives us, the transformation, the hope of future and ultimate glorification that we will rule and reign with you forever. Help us not to forget that throughout this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're dismissed. <laughs>